Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels here from the Santa Monica studio. It's French Open week, and we have a lot to break down. Everyone's buzzing. The draws came out. Rob Simulcare hosts the Bet the Baseline. Our gambling show is going to be breaking down both the men's and the women's draws, some of our picks to make runs, some tasty first-round matchups. But up first, it's our newest Tennis Channel broadcaster, CeCe Bellis, former top 35 player in the world. 2017 WTA Newcomer of the Year, unfortunately had her career cut short due to injury. She's been calling matches, killing it there, and has a lot going on in her life. The 23-year-old will break down everything in her career, the highs, the lows, the decision to move on from tennis, and what she has going on in her life now. You're not going to want to miss what CeCe Bellis has to say. She's up first, followed by Rob Simulcare. This is Tennis Channel Inside In. Let's start the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels live from the Santa Monica studios for another interview. We've got a special guest this week. She was the newcomer of the year on the WTA in 2017, made waves as a 15-year-old winning a U.S. Open main draw match, is doing some Tennis Channel broadcast work now, 23 years old by way of Northern California. CeCe Bellis, thank you for joining the show. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I guess start with this. We'll have a good origin story for names. Why CC? Where did the nickname come from? I don't know if you know this, but you were listed as Catherine on a lot of the <laughs> player images stuff at first. So where yeah. did CC come from? Yeah, so that's that's a funny question. So my first name's Catherine. My middle name also starts with a C. Okay. So um, I guess, you know, my parents just thought putting them together, CC. That's how they came up with it. Okay, so yeah. it was just by, you know, by nature, probably a little yeah. easier for them to just yell CC when you needed to I come inside so. or, yeah. or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so you born and raised in California. I know your backstory, which we can kind of get into. Your mom was a tennis player competitively at the junior in college. You liked soccer as well as a kid. How did you find tennis? And then ultimately, why was it the one? Why was it the sport that you wanted to focus on? Yeah, no. So I, I played pretty much every sport growing up. Um, did gymnastics, swimming, you know, the huge, the kind of all-American type mm -hmm. of kid playing everything. And uh, yeah, I kind of narrowed it down to soccer and tennis when I was about uh, maybe seven or eight. I kind of was just focusing on those two and then ultimately decided to choose tennis when I was I think around 11 maybe um I really liked the individual aspect of it I think mm -hmm. soccer was so fun to be on a team but I really liked you know having the individual kind of if you win it's all on you yeah. but if you lose it's all on you as well type of vibe from tennis and yeah just I I really like the competitive aspect of it were you someone that just loved being out on the court? Did you ever experience any burnout or you just couldn't get enough of just picking up a racket and playing? No, I, yeah, I could never get enough. That was <laughs> every coach that I had always mm -hmm. said that about me. They were like, oh, we can't seem to get you off of the court. You know, we, you can never want to put your racket away or anything like that. So yeah, that was definitely uh, kind of how I thought about it. Well, I can tell you when we realized that on the outside, but when did you realize that you were special for, you know, not just your age, but just you had something in this game that was 
different than your youth and your peers? Um, I don't know. I think, you know, probably playing some junior national tournaments uh, for the USTA was probably uh, when I started thinking this could be, you know, a great college sport for me or even possibly pro. I think in the 12s I was uh, – I won a couple um, – you know, of the biggest national titles and then going on through until, you know, I was 15 winning the, the girls 18s, um, hard courts title. I think those were some big moments. So I, I did have a question for you just on the side from that is one of the premier junior players, you got to go to some events. I'm assuming you got to meet some pretty big names in tennis. Who was the first person that you met? That's like, Oh, I can't believe I'm meeting this famous tennis player. So I think it was at the Bank of the West Classic Tournament. I did the coin flip for Sharapova. Okay. <laughs> and that was such a cool moment for me. I think I was, yeah, maybe <laughs> 10 years old or something. It was awesome. Yeah, that's, I mean, I would imagine it's surreal to to just get to meet your idols and see them in the flesh. You had a pretty famous coach, Monique. Uh, Diaz. Uh, yeah, Diaz, that's mm -hmm. right. And that that coach... I think you've, you've been on record saying was very instrumental in your development. What was it like to just kind of find someone that really was dedicated to building you up as a young tennis player? Yeah, she was great. I, uh, I think I started working with her when I was around seven. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was obviously a great pro player and, and developed me kind of how she was developed. We did a lot of consistency based drills and that type of training, which I think, you know, attributed to my game style. So yeah, it was awesome. I saw that your basically unabashed tennis idol was Kim Kleisters. And it, I'm just curious, is that where you got your aggressive nature, aggressive style play from? Were there any other players that you kind of studied and really looked up to? Yeah, Kim was definitely my favorite. I just, I love the way she played and, and uh, just kind of everything about her. She was awesome. I remember vividly watching her when I was younger, especially winning the U.S. Open uh, right after she had uh, her first Ooh. child, which was fantastic. Um, but you know, I think I looked up to all the Americans growing up too. obviously the Williams sisters and, um, a ton of others. So, yeah, I mean, she kind of, we're in this like mom, like movement, but she kind of started it way back when, like Definitely. winning a couple majors after having a kid and, uh, coming through, uh, yeah, just the quote, I want to talk about your style. You've, you went on record saying you're very aggressive, you're consistent, but you're also consistent and you kind of wait for the right shot to, uh, to dictate. Was that organically just how you approach the game or was that something that you studied could be beneficial to you in having success? No, I think, you know, it's just kind of how I played in the juniors. I would say I was quite a bit more aggressive than I ended up being in the mm -hmm. pros just because, you know, in the pros, I was a lot smaller than a lot of the girls that I was playing. And I had to kind of use my physicality and speed a bit more uh, than I would say in the juniors. But, yeah, it's just how it came about. Yeah. It's just funny you say that because you're not like for people out there listening or watching, like you're not a small person. But was it that step up? You get to the pro level. I guess other sports like professional football, you get to that level. And it's like, wow, these guys are big. Did you feel that way a little bit? Yeah, I think you <laughs> might be the only person that have said I'm not a small person. So I really appreciate yeah, that. Okay. Um, but compared to the players I was playing against, you know, girls that are six feet tall, it's uh, quite a bit of a difference for sure. So, yeah, well, uh, so your junior career, it, it's one of the legendary ones that American tennis has had this century, really. When did things start to speed up to the point of, I mean, we can get to, we'll get to the U.S. Open at age 15, but you were playing junior events that same year and then you're in the main draw and winning matches. But did, was that the year when it started to kind of hit warp speed or was it a build, a slow build before that? I think that was probably the year I started, you know, doing well in junior ITFs, like you said, and, and I had a great run. Um, 
kind of in the the junior swing even before I I played national hardcore that year and then that that definitely accelerated it. So 2014 is going to be remembered for you for I'm sure for the rest of your life but you looking at it from a standpoint of you win a junior event you get to play in the main draw. Did you have any expectations at the US Open going into that? No, definitely <laughs> not. I was just looking at it as, you know, such a cool experience for for me at that age and my first major event. So it was just more extremely fun for me, and it turned out to be a great result. So we have a few things. That's the first photo we're going to go to <laughs> from 2014. Now, it seems like probably a lifetime ago, yeah. I'm assuming. <laughs> you said, like, and you beat Dominika Sibokova, who was a top 15 player at the time, who's a, a mainstay on tour, and you beat her. You said, like, I had no idea what to do, right? Like, you didn't even know how to wave to a crowd, or what the, oh, what yeah. the pomp and mm -hmm. circumstance was. So you were all just going on the fly and trying to figure it out. Yeah, obviously, you know, I'd never been in a situation like that. I'd never played a Grand Slam, had barely played any pro tournaments. I think I'd played maybe two 10,000 events way earlier that year. So I was really, really new coming into this. And yeah, it was I was learning as I was going, for sure. I have to imagine, as we look at another photo, I have to imagine that it has to be kind of freeing to just be able to play, not necessarily loose, but with no expectations. All the pressures on the veteran, you hear players a lot say, I don't want to be the one to use the young or the unproven player. So in a way, it kind of relaxes you. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think we've seen that from so many players yeah. even after me. And um, even, you know, currently a ton of young players are doing great. They're playing with no pressure. It's, it's so easy to be in that position. What were those few days like, like the win going in, maybe in between matches, being kind of famous for the first time? What, was, what were some of your favorite memories of just that experience in those couple of days? Um, I was... It wasn't the best few days for me, honestly. It was it was a lot uh, at that age to deal with everything that was going on. I definitely don't look back on it in like the most fond way, just because there was so much going on. <laughs> I, I was having eight hours of press every day, which was yeah. You know, I didn't know that you could get out of certain things. As you know, there are definitely mandatory things that you have to do, but you don't have to say yes to everything. I had to learn a lot in that aspect when I was that age. Had you ever given a press conference before? No, absolutely <laughs> not. I mean, I'd never played a pro tournament before. So it was, yeah. First pro tournament, you're 15 years old, not legally driving age. You win a match and then it's just cameras. I mean, I guess... I don't know if you have any like agoraphobia, fear of crowds or any of that stuff. No, it has to be intense. Not. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I could see why some players are just tough to deal with, but you were the first, the youngest American, youngest woman to win uh, a main draw match in Lindsay Davenport about, you know, 20 plus years prior, but you get that experience. Was it still college? Was that still the plan at that point? Did that, because we'll get to a couple years later, but at that age, were you still thinking, okay, Stanford, I'm a bear. Oh yeah, girl. definitely. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> all I thought about. That's um, was still, you know, the biggest goal of mine was to, you know, get to that point and, and just, um, you know, continue my career through college and, and uh, go the academic route. When did that change? Was it the U.S. Open in 2016 where you went on a little bit more of a run? Um, well, I had a ranking goal in mind at that mm -hmm. point. I told myself if I made top 100 in the world before I went to college, then I would turn pro. And that tournament is what propelled me there. Because we that's the one I remember. 2014, I mean... Obviously, we see wins happen on occasion. Big upsets, they're great. But to come back and prove that it wasn't just a one-time thing, I think that's what stood out to me, at least. 2016, you go on this win, you go on a couple-match uh, win streak there, and uh, you actually had fans there that remembered you. That's what I also remember from that. Yeah, that, that was a fun moment. I had come through qualities at that event, so I think I had... I was five matches in and just absolutely exhausted, but it was so much fun. So you hit the ranking goal? Uh, 2016 US Open right there, just mm -hmm. getting off the ground. 
you hit the ranking goal at that U.S. Open. Like yeah. that's when it was okay. It was. It was either. I think I hit like right a hundred or right around it. How did your family, parents, how did your circle take the news that okay, it's time to maybe go pro and not college? Yeah, I mean they were a big part of making that decision with me. It was definitely not just my choice. Um, I needed extra support around. You know, is this the right thing to do? You know, what should I do? I've been holding out on this for a while, but I think, you know, it was, it was definitely an exciting day for me and, and fun to kind of be on that journey. The run at the U S open ended against the eventual champion, Angelique Kerber, who's number one in the world, had her best career year by a mile. What was it like sharing the court with her and just, you know, getting to kind of for the first time, still not even an adult experience what that level of greatness was like. Yeah, it was insane. Sure. It's funny when I've been broadcasting this week, it's come up a couple of times when we've been watching and, and commentating on Kerber's match that she was definitely uh, at the time, the best player that I'd ever played just with how solid her ground strokes w were and um, how incredible she was playing at that time. It was, it was really cool to share the court with her. When you were on the court with her and you got to kind of experience it, were there certain things with kind of professionalism I want to say because you're still at that age super young did you kind of maybe not just her but being around the pro game playing in a couple US Opens did you kind of pick up on some things about how this is life on pro tour because you're never going to really know until you experience it but were you starting to get an idea of what that was like yeah definitely I think um I wouldn't necessarily say at that point but uh later that year when I was playing a ton more tournaments I think that's when I picked up on it more Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. CC Bellis here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, as we go to your decision to go pro, 2017, you know, you turn 18, and you have, uh, by all accounts, just a tremendously consistent uh, season. Starting out, were there growing pains? Because from the outside, it didn't really look like, <laughs> it didn't really look like you were struggling that much. But from the day-to-day, -day, were there growing pains of being a pro? Um, I don't think so, honestly, at that point. I was enjoying it so much, and yeah, just really having a good time. I didn't feel any, you know, too many growing pains or stresses from it. Does that your highlight of your professional career when you see that graphic that in, of all the people that joined the tour in 2017, you were newcomer of the year because of how well you did on all surfaces, clay, third round, hard court, some results that I would imagine is something that you'll think and remember fondly. Yeah, that was definitely definitely a highlight. It was such a cool moment knowing uh, the players that had won that award before me. So, yeah, it was awesome. What was that first Roland Garros trip like? Like getting out there, seeing the city. Everybody gushes about how pretty it is, and there's a lot, you know, to take in. And you were able to, you know, experience it, but also win a couple matches. Yeah, it was so cool. Actually, the first time I ever played RG was in Qualies when I was 15. But that was the second time that I had ever played and, and won a few rounds and had the absolute best time there. You beat Kiki Burtons, who ended up kind of going on a tear after that, and then playing Caroline Wozniacki, who I would imagine uh, you have to probably be in pretty good shape to, <laughs> to share the court with her because she's just not going to falter in that regard. Yeah, it was it was so much fun. We had, uh, I think, a you know great, great match. That was a tough loss for me, being so close to winning that and getting to a round of 16. But, yeah, a super good tournament overall. Did you find that that pro level and that step up in competition was manageable because – like we mentioned before, like you're only going to experience it and go through it together. But 
you make that step up. You're a full time pro. You're not playing junior matches anymore, but you're hanging in there and you know winning awards and got to the top forty. Yeah, you know, I think that was the biggest thing for me was just kind of hanging in there and mm-hmm. and you know kind of seeing how it played out. So unfortunately, it kind of turns to you know the the not so fun stuff to remember. When did you start to feel any discomfort issue? Uh, injury related because you've seemed to have been pretty healthy up until about this time yeah I had I really wasn't a player that had you know injuries growing up or anything um I was really fortunate about that but uh it was the French Open that um that we just talked about where I I made it to the third round that I started kind of feeling it a little bit um and then kind of played with tendonitis that whole year until the following year when it got really bad so it's 2018 and uh the the cruel irony of, of fate and of life and everything is you not your biggest win of your career be Pliskova in uh, Qatar in February and then by March it was like I have to shut this down it had gotten is that correct that it had yeah. gotten too bad yeah I think it was it was uh just actually in April it was um I was playing a tournament in Mexico and there was yeah I, I played my match and the next day I woke up and like couldn't move my wrist so um yeah that was kind of the the end of it at that point what are some of the things that we don't see on the outside of just the process? And I know mentally it can be, if not more draining than the physical part. What were some of the, you know, tough parts of going through an injury and, and being a tennis player, maybe feeling that, you know, you're robbed of it at a certain time when you're just hitting your stride? Yeah. You know, I think the toughest part was not being able to compete when that's like all I wanted to do. I just turned pro and, or, you know, I guess a couple of years before that, but um, I was still obviously a teenager, really young on tour and, and doing well. So it was tough for me to not be able to, you know, train and compete and, and uh, put my game on the line. So April, 2018, you wake up in discomfort. Do you have surgery right away after that? No. Um, I went through a couple different opinions on it mm-hmm. and ended up uh, with a doctor that had, um, I think done the risks of Del Potro, Madison mm-hmm. Keys, a lot of the top tennis players. And he finally figured out what was going on. I had uh, a couple of doctors that couldn't um, quite nail down exactly right. what was what was going on. And yeah, he finally did. And um, I think it was uh, June maybe that I had the surgery. How long was it after June before you could even pick up a racket again? Um, so I think, you know, I did rehab after that first mm-hmm. surgery and probably tried a few months later maybe but it still wasn't wasn't totally 100 percent. when you look back at any of this stuff do you have regrets on maybe not not necessarily decisions but just trying to gut it out maybe a little too much did you have anything you you think maybe I should have done a little differently I don't know it's it's tough I wasn't you know I didn't come back too early or anything Mm -hmm. that's not what happened it was just it ended up um you know, not really working out. It wasn't yeah. really something that I did. So yeah, I don't, it, I don't have any regrets. It doesn't seem like it was an over, I guess, overuse issue either. Like it was just going to happen whether you're playing college or whether you're at the pro level. Right. Yeah. It was just genetic, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, overall I think, yeah, not too many regrets. Well, I think 2020 when you came back and again, this is, we're fast forwarding here, but April, 2018, it was like over a year and a half basically of just getting ravaged by this injury. But you make your way through Australian Open, qualifying all the way through, and then you beat Mukova, who ended up being a semifinalist the following year. But of all the accomplishments you've had, junior and pro career, I got to think that that has to rank up there because you proved you can build yourself back up again. Yeah, that was a huge moment for me. And I think 
just being able to to get through finally all the injuries and in the rehab and getting back to playing was was huge and, and something that I'm definitely proud of. 2020, um, when you got back on the court and you started playing, was there still discomfort from the get-go? Did it just kind of rear up and flare up later? There was a little bit, but not enough to be worried about at that point. But then later in the year is when it um, started going downhill. When, uh, and I know it's a, it's a tough question to ask somebody younger, but when did you get to the point where you felt like I kind of have to, or I, I'm starting to think about maybe, you know, giving up the game and moving on to other things? Yeah, it was probably that summer-ish or that fall. Um, and, you know, we COVID happened, so mm -hmm. we didn't play for a while. And then it was in uh, 2020 that I was playing um, a couple pro circuit tournaments and it got really, really bad in my elbow. Um, mm -hmm. So at that point I was like, hmm, if, it's, if this doesn't, you know, kind of clear up, then it's not looking good. Yeah, you mentioned uh, before we started that you feel fine today but it's the serving and it's at that elite level. So I guess in one sense, it's great that you're not going to go through life like some injured pro athletes that are just ravaged and don't get around well. It's just to compete at such a grueling sport, such a talent-filled sport, it needed to be a little better, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I can go out and hit totally fine, and I do sometimes for mm -hmm. fun, and it's awesome that I am able to still do that. I feel really blessed that I am. But, yeah, I think serving um, is a pretty big part of tennis, so and that's not something I can do. Well, when you look at your, you know, albeit short career, it has to feel, I mean, at least from the outside, it has to feel like you had real moments. Like you were able to have many runs at the U.S. Open, win a match as a 15-year-old, have fan support, have these, you know, a top 40 ranking and a WTA Newcomer of the Year award. Moments that a lot of players, even the ones that play super long, never get to achieve. You packed a lot into that short career. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely glad I could do what I could in, in the short period and obviously definitely wish I could have done a bit more and had a bit more time, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely happy with what I'm doing now and, and happy that I did have the career that yeah. I did. So more with CC Bellis here on tennis channel inside. And well, in addition to, you know, your tennis career, you were somebody that's attacked life positively. And, uh, I think this is commencement from a little <laughs> bit ago. It is. Indiana. Yeah. That's last week. Last week. Well, <laughs> yep. okay. We're, we're pretty up to date here then on, on your life happenings. But yeah, you are. Indiana, you get your, your degree. Was it a business degree? Yeah, business and minor in finance. Nice. And this is, again, all credit to the WTA's partnership mm -hmm. providing these opportunities. But I'm starting to see why in researching you, you're going to get an MBA, you're working. Stanford really missed out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that would have been, uh, Stanford would have been a cool yeah. experience, but I'm so happy with the experiences that I've had. And obviously, you know, the people that I met, that's uh, one of my favorite professors right there in that photo. So yeah, it's been fantastic. And it was a no brainer, right? Like you were going to go back to school. You were going to eventually get your degree and then think about more than just playing tennis. For sure. I always wanted to have that in my back pocket as a backup plan. And it definitely paid off that I, that I did that. So talking about some of your current stuff, and I just want to make sure we have it all here. Uh, you're an investment analyst right now at uh, Lead Sports and uh, Health Tech Partners. And uh, I looked up kind of some of what they did, you know, investing in smart resources, want to uh, get fan engagement and well-being going. But if you could talk to me a little bit about what exactly that company is and why it pulled you into it. Someone that's obviously so excited about being there. So it obviously touched something inside of you to work there. Yeah, it, so it's so funny. Um, when I committed to Stanford, I knew I wanted to get into venture once I, you know, finished college, just kind of growing up in the Silicon Valley area. It's all mm -hmm. that was talked yeah. about and um, so much buzz around it. So it always interests me. And 
um, when I stopped playing, I got an internship with uh, a huge um, kind of land developer who developed all of Lake Nona right around, you know, the USTA area. And their joint venture partner is Lead Sports and Health Tech Partners. Um, so it was started by the grandkids of Adi Dossler, which is a really cool okay. story, the co-founder of Adidas. And uh, we only invest in sports and health tech companies. So it was actually a pretty perfect, uh, you know, kind of transition point for me coming from being a pro athlete. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it's awesome. It's something different every day and um, really interests me. Okay. Well, sorry for the old Nike photos that I, <laughs> I know that was a past. <laughs> oh, no, 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 <laughs> no. I, I'm yeah. a huge fan of Nike yeah. still that it has nothing to do with that. So but that's but that's good, though. It's just it's it's so, I guess, refreshing in one word, but you never had that what am I going to do with my life after my career ends moment? You were already thinking, okay, this is going to be fun. And, you know, you're seem to be enjoying it just as much, if not more than your actual pro tennis career. Yeah. I was absolutely never going to be one of those people that takes five years to figure out what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. That was just not going to be me. I think anyone who really knows me probably figured that this was something like this was going to happen pretty soon after. I'm just, I feel like I'm the type of person that would move on to something that uh, I enjoy just as much or even more, like you said. So when did you catch the commentary bug? That's you <laughs> in Charleston, working for Tennis Channel. You're calling matches uh, here for T2. And I know last year, I think, did it start some NCAA work uh, yeah. calling some of mm-hmm. those matches? So when did you catch the bug and think, this is something I'd like to do as well? Yeah, you know, it was kind of earlier this year, I think. I got this opportunity uh, with Tennis Channel in Charleston and really liked it. And I'm having a blast this week. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to doing some more. What's some of your favorite parts and, and also on top of that, some tough that some parts that are a little more challenging than maybe you would have expected before you had a live mic in your hand. Yeah, I mean, I think for me it's it's pretty simple just because I I've played the game for so long and I've watched so many hours of tennis and you know either being the player or watching it I've just had so much experience overall in tennis so I think I can um, you know give some interesting insight be, both being the player and just of being watched it for so long. Um, some of the hard parts, you know, honestly, I, I don't find it too, too difficult right mm-hmm. now. I've, I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's, um, you know, I just have to, I think, keep thinking of how the player would think of it. And I feel like that's right. what I'm trying to bring to the broadcasting. Right. You obviously have the experience, the world-class ability having been there, but also being so recently removed from the game, you kind of understand. I don't want to say that older analysts don't in sports, but they're they're so far removed that they it's you know not as close to their memory. You know from experience exactly what they're kind of going through. So I think yeah. that's good. I think that's also why some of the better analysts come in young and are, are killing it in all sports right away. I mean, I I definitely like to think so. I think <laughs> you know I've played every single one of these players that's too. True. So I think yeah. it's I feel like I know them all like the back of my hand. I know their game style and just from literally playing them. So yeah, it's it's a cool experience. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, before we uh, kind of wrap this up, it's been a blast. CC Bells here on Tennis Channel Inside, and you've had a lot of experiences in life that tennis has kind of opened doors for you. Just the last photo we have uh, <laughs> playing some celebrity tennis. That's now, awesome. I don't know really everybody in this photo. I obviously know Chrissy Everett and Patrick McEnroe. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of the actor's name, but he's the guy from Justified yep. and Deadwood. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, I think Scandal. Scandal. Someone told yep. me that. Yep. I don't watch the show, mm-hmm. so I haven't either. But yeah, he okay. is from Scandal. So yeah. what's it like, just you know, this experience, this event, but also getting on the court with some celebrities and kind of the lighter moments that tennis. Oh, provide. so fun! Yeah, tennis has opened so many doors for me. This was an awesome moment. Chrissy was uh, my mentor um, throughout you know my whole career since I was uh, fourteen or fifteen. She's you know awesome. I still talk to her a ton. So um, she's been great, and I love both of the McEnroe brothers. So we've yeah. Had, yeah, it was this was such a fun moment. She seems like she's everybody's mentor. Yeah. You know, the young American, not even always just American, but the WTA players. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing, like, of all the celebrities, a funny question, though, like, best game, worst game? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, they were pretty even. They're, okay. Yeah, Nobody so, stood out one way or the other. No, I don't think so. Okay. So I was, yeah, I was playing, um, this was so long. I think we all kind of switched around, so it was okay. kind of tough to see who was who was the best, but we, we had a great time. It was pretty even, I Okay. Say. I was just trying yeah. to see if we had dirt on it. It doesn't even have to be <laughs> in this photo, but. No, no. Uh, no, that's, that's <laughs> Dr. good. Dr. Phil was pretty good. Dr. Phil yeah. plays a lot. Yeah. yeah we know that. Mm-hmm. Um, lastly, before I let you go, um, thoughts on kind of the current game. We're going in the French Open. Do you have, uh, uh, I mean, it's basically Iga versus the field. Do you see it that way, or there are some other players we should be taking some stock in? Iga, Anz Jabor, and Belinda Bencic are my three favorites going in. Mm. I think those are the three best clay quarters on tour, um, and so those are my three picks. Those are your three picks? Yeah. Nice. I mean, yeah. Belinda just won Charleston. Anz is as consistent as anyone outside Iga, who's, I mean, Mm. this is unprecedented territory she's entering. Is there anybody that we should be taking stock in uh, that's kind of off the radar? You've gotten to play these opponents and anybody Um. else? Aside from the ones that I mentioned, I think those are the best clay quarter. I think you can't also count out Paula Bedosa on clay, another great mm-hmm. player. I played her in the juniors, actually, but um, never in pros. We miss each other by a little bit, I think. But, um, yeah, I think maybe those four would be my, okay. my top four. Good to know. Yeah. CC Bellis, thank you for joining Tennis Channel Inside In. Mm-hmm. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, you know, I don't even think I really need to wish you that much good luck. <laughs> you have so much kind of going on. Oh, but thank you. Thanks for joining me for this chat, and uh, best of luck with everything. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, now on Tennis Channel Inside In, host of, well, a lot of TC Live content as well as Bet the Baseline. It's our own TC's own, Rob Simulcare. Rob, good to chat with you again on a different platform here on the Tennis Channel Inside In podcast. French Open draw just came out. We're all fired up, and I'm happy to have you here on the show. Thanks, man. Great to have you. We've had a lot of fun talking uh, tennis betting on my Bet the Baseline show. So uh, exciting day with the French Open Roland Garros draws coming out. Draw ceremony days are always, you know, anxious, anxious. There's tense uh, environment. They're, the atmosphere is really, you know, we got to see what happens. And uh, they didn't let us down in the drama department. Djokovic, Nadal in the same quarter, Alcaraz in the same half. These were by and large, far and away, the three betting favorites going into this tournament. There was some drama going in. Alcaraz rose up the rankings, beat them both. Nadal has an injury flare up the 13-time champion here, and then Djokovic wins Rome. Before we get into the updated markets, now, Rob, we're seeing that they're on the same side of the draw. It's, it's unfortunate on one hand, but on the other side, we're going to get probably these early matchups for sure and earlier in the tournament. Yeah, it's going to be a fun first full weekend, I think, uh, at Roland Garros. We won't have to wait until the final weekend to get some amazing matches. So if you're, if you're into watching a couple weeks worth of tennis, I think it's great news because we're going to have some incredible matches. Everybody knew there was a chance that this would happen because of the way their rankings are sitting right now. Nadal, after the incredible start to the year, the amazing win at the Australian Open, you know, gets his ranking up, but still not 
where it would have been to need, need to be to avoid being in the half of the quarter with Djokovic, then the injury issue comes up as well. So we really don't know what to expect, including whether Rafael Nadal even gets there for first ball at Roland Garros. That's still an open question. And so, you know, that, that could end up being a, look, a lucky loser in that spot for all we know. But yeah. for now, what we do know is a, a, a much tougher road to the final for Nadal if his foot does happen to allow him to play and get that far. And it looks like we're going to have some potentially really early fireworks with the Djokovic-Akaraz matchup. Boy, it's just so crazy that if that injury doesn't happen, he gets that 4C, doesn't get passed in the ranking, and then all of a sudden, you know, now he's on the same quarter. Um, it's just funny how one thing and one incident, like how this game works. I also do believe, too, that there's the theory out there that Nadal's early couple rounds is not so much about who he's playing, it's how the body responds. In one sense, for Djokovic, right? Number one seed, winning Rome, back into form, looking great. I actually think this might be better for him to come across Nadal earlier as opposed to if Nadal were to have made the final, then he's convinced me that, okay, he's he's back to normal. He's fine. I think he's going to be more like a wounded animal earlier in the tournament, whereas if he, you know, if he comes to form and goes late, he's won this thing 13 times, he's looking pretty good if he gets to the final where he's undefeated. Based on where Nadal was at the end of that, that match that he lost to Shapovalov in Rome, I, I would put the chances of he and Djokovic actually meeting mm. at less than 50%. Wow. I think there's a significant chance he doesn't play, you know, which we hope doesn't happen. And then if he does play, I, you know, I think he's, he's potentially prone to an upset that he never would have been prone to well, if he were healthy. So they, I, yeah. just like the loss to Shapovalov, which is something we wouldn't have seen he was in total control of that match before the foot flared up. So he's got to have three successful outings um, of healthy foot. Remember, we're talking three out of five sets now, Mitch. So yeah. even in a straight sets win, he's got to play three sets in round one, round two, round three without any significant issues with the foot. Unless he's got a doctor who is able to do some real wonders. And you know, I'm not a doctor. I can't speculate as to his situation, but. I just think it's going to be a tall order for him to even get that far. If he does, perhaps you're right. Maybe it's better for Djokovic, although it's funny, Mitch. If Djokovic had not made it to the semis in Rome, he would have fallen to number two. And you could argue he'd be better off <laughs> yeah. on that other side of the yeah. draw, mm -hmm. away from Carlos Alcaraz, just having to deal perhaps with a Sitsipas and let Medvedev be up there in the top half dealing with Alcaraz and Nadal. Yeah, and, and just to get to Nadal again, there's no, like, we know how great he is on clay. The path isn't one of his e easier ones. It's funny. He would get the the returning stand in the second round. It could be somebody like Fognini or, or Bodic, uh, who's done better in the third round. It would be Felix in the fourth round. So not that Nadal fears anybody on clay, but I understand that. I just think the grind to get there. And I think for Djokovic, the, the point I bring up about maybe wanting to play him earlier is to stop momentum in its tracks before Nadal plays downhill physically and literally. Uh, the updated markets, which I do want to touch on right now, uh, have Nadal at about plus, you know, four to one, I should say, I, I should say there. Djokovic and Alcaraz are kind of co-favorites. You can find odds on different sports books where one's slightly ahead of the other, depending on who you like in this tournament. Djokovic, you brought him up. He is the defending champion, the number one player in the world, the number one seed. And he goes into this tournament with more momentum than he's had all year, if not not just the title, Rob, the fact that he's playing matches. 
He does. I mean, uh, you've got to like where you are right now. If you're Novak Djokovic, we were talking about how long it was going to take for him to get back into form when he lost his first match on clay in Monte Carlo. Uh, and then uh, gradually we watched him through the clay court season. Remember, after not having played very much tennis because of what happened in Australia. So we watched him play himself into form. That really sort of culminated in that terrific run he had through in Rome, through in Rome winning the title there, beating Tsitsipas in the final in very convincing form. And so I think you, you got to like where he is right now. There's, there's no reason for me to believe at this point that Novak Djokovic does not get to that at, the, at a minimum, uh, a quarterfinal against Nadal. And I think, frankly, given Nadal's situation, I don't see a reason to, 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 to see anyone but Djokovic taking on Alcaraz in that semifinal if they, if they both get there. I, that, that feels to me like, uh, if not inevitable, maybe the safest bet other than Iga Shiantek <laughs> in this entire tournament. I think that it's funny not to take anything away from Alcaraz and the accomplishments at Madrid, but didn't you think that in that semifinal match against between those two Djokovic and Alcaraz, you're watching it thinking there's still levels for Djokovic to get to. Like as great as this match is and as great as he's looked, there's still more for him to unlock. And lo and behold, most predictable thing ever at Rome, he gets to the next level. That's exactly right. And, and that's a, an experienced champion of 21 uh, Grand Slams, 20 Grand Slams, and knowing what he needs and the timing that he needs to peak at. He's not someone who wanted to peak in Barcelona or Madrid or even Rome. He wanted to come out of that clay court swing feeling like, okay, this is it. I am, I've done what I need to do. I am prepared. And now I'm ready to go out with enough rest under my belt as well to perform at my peak mm -hmm. in a three out of five set grand slam, having to win seven matches. So I just think he's in the perfect position. He's played the right amount of tennis. He's in the right form. And I, I do think he's, again, I just, he's got to be feeling great about his chances. We're going to break down like the early round matchups and the paths for these guys in just a minute. But looking at the other, you know, three headed monster of this Carlos Alcaraz, the Alcaraz, the unknown of not only being, you know, into a grand slam with all this momentum as a young guy, but being a favorite, the expectations, the, the best of five now, we know this kid's a beast and he's just passed every test with flying colors, but is there anything, anything that I said, anything else that Rob might give you pause in backing this kid going into a major as a favorite? Uh, not a lot, to be honest, in the first three or four rounds. I mean, he hasn't shown a lot of susceptibility to nerves. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he's, he's shown so far that he's okay stepping on the court as a favorite as a young guy and, and not letting that bother him. He is a, he's not only a great player, he's a great front runner as well. He doesn't get tight when he's trying to serve out sets and matches. So between that, his athleticism, you know, someone wrote on uh, tennis.com, there's a good article about Alcaraz this week, talking about the unbelievable physical transformation that Alcaraz somehow managed to pull off between the end of the season in 2021 and the Australian Open, if you look at pictures of him from the U.S. Open to the Australian Open, it's like this guy put on 20 pounds. He clearly spent a lot of time in the weight room getting ready to have the stamina 
and the physical presence to last in three out of five set matches. I think that's the only thing that maybe he didn't really have going for him in New York at the, at the U S open. And he's, he's resolved that he's dealt with that. Yeah. So now you got him in great shape on what may end up being his best servers. I, I still think Harcourt's may be his best, but certainly a surface he's incredibly comfortable on in great condition coming in as hot as anyone. So no, I just think he and Djokovic feel like two irresistible yeah. forces heading towards each other right now. It's funny how nine times out of 10, right? I would say all these things are just natural issues to have for a young player. The best of five, the expectations, the pressures, the having to go against the greats mentally. He is that exception. Like he is the exception to the rule. There's not many. He's one of them. And looking at that Australian Open where he lost to Berrettini, he actually finished the match better. It was, if anything, the start of the match, digging himself a hole that was a little too big, but it wasn't a stamina issue. My answer to my own question would be, the only thing that gives me pause is Novak Djokovic. It's not any element. It's not any psychological thing. It's eventually getting to the semis, or all due respect to Rafa, if he, if he is healthy and figures it out, it's getting to that stage where you're playing an all-time great that would be in form. It's not any of the outside noise or anything like that. It's that he's eventually going to have to beat Djokovic, presumably, or Nadal in a best-of-five match. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, you know, thinking a bit more about Djokovic, I guess the only thing that would give me any pause about Djokovic at this point is the three out of five. And the fact that, remember, it was yeah. only a month ago we saw Djokovic sort of keeled over in, in matches in Serbia, right, in, in the Belgrade Open. And he was clearly winded. There was clearly a cardiovascular challenge he had. And we still haven't seen him go three out of five since that break he had, since the Australian Open, frankly, since he, I guess, reportedly yeah. had COVID, right? So yeah. if he has any lingering cardiovascular issues, any conditioning issues, we're going to see it the first time he's really pushed in a three out of five set match. So that's probably the one thing I would keep an eye out for with Djokovic. You know, that's not going to, going to be an issue with Alcaraz and you know, yeah. going long in matches is going to be an issue with Nadal given his foot yeah. situation. So taking all that into account, Mitch, I like Alcaraz even more because he's the only guy on that half that I have absolutely no questions about his physical readiness yeah. to get through a two week grand slam tournament on clay. Everybody mentions like greatest matches ever. And, and I look at it as almost like, a, what, what was my most amazing match ever? I keep going back to 10 years ago, that Australian Open, uh, Djokovic Nadal, where they played six hours. And it was the first time I'm like, is anybody going to get tired? Because <laughs> I'm getting tired watching it. But stamina has, that's what we take for granted with these guys. Nadal, it's an injury that you question his stamina. And Djokovic, it's just not being on the court. But if they round into form, I think we're... We're going to get some great matchups early. On the other side of that draw, Rob, Sitsipas, the beneficiary of that dream scenario we, we threw out on Bet the Baseline, if he can avoid all of them, well, he has to the final. He was about 6-1 to one going into today. I think that number's dropped down plus 450, plus 500 range. But he is the beneficiary of maybe some tough early matchups getting his feet wet, but he avoids all of them to the final, and you got to like your chances if you're a Stefano Sitsipas supporter or backer because he would only have to play one of these big three in the final. Yeah, so I think if you if you like to bet on tennis, you like to bet on futures, uh, you know, putting a bet on Tsitsipas to win the tournament right now makes sense only because it does appear he's got the easiest path of a 
top player to the final, not having to go through a Djokovic, an Alcaraz, or an Nadal. If he gets that far, then you can always, you know, you know what we call hedge, bet on the other side of that to, to make sure you make a little bit of money. But yeah, Sitsipas, everything that you've seen from him during not just this clay court swing, but frankly, last year's clay court, where he made it to the final of this tournament, there's nothing that you would look at in his results and, and, and question his readiness to make another run to the final in Roland Garros. It seems like it's right there for him. The only question I have about him right now, Mitch, is if you look at what Djokovic did to him mm. in the final in Rome, and you look at how methodically he picked apart Tsitsipas, particularly on the backhand wing, he just went after that backhand over and over and over again. Yeah. And you started to see the errors. You started to see frustration. He clearly gave you the blueprint for yeah. beating Stefano Tsitsipas. And other players are going to be watching that match. They're going to be taking notes on that. If someone else can go out and replicate that, and you mentioned he's got a couple of pretty tough matchups, it looks like, in the first few rounds, that's the only chance I give someone of picking Tsitsipas off. There is an issue there that he's going to have to figure out how to address. That's why he himself said he thinks Djokovic and Alcaraz are the favorites to win this tournament. Yeah, replicating the greatest maybe ever is a tough task for sure. Yes. Uh, yes. And he did not start that match. I mean, that was an abysmal and atrocious, pick the, pick the word you want, start to the match. Second set better off, but he still faltered when he was up a break. I think that mentally is where his biggest challenge is going to come because he's, you know, it's funny. He's had some breakdowns, but it isn't like on clay. He's been consistent, solid. His, his approach, the way he plays, it's almost perfect for the surface. But he's had some mental hiccups, some stuff on the court, some stuff with the bathroom break and the coaching thing. I, I still think, though, and, and we know that's why we love sports is that there's no sure thing. The sh one of the surest things looking at either draw is that Tsitsipas is a consistent clay court player. He doesn't go out early in a lot of these tournaments on this surface. So I like it. And then that'll kind of segue into right now what I want to talk to you about here, Rob, is some of the early matchups and paths getting there. And we can kind of start at the bottom of the draw, that Tsitsipas section, which I'm going to give to him because the number two player in the world right now, Daniil Medvedev, has played one clay court match and he's lost it. This is a, maybe a, a betting strategy is find some players, maybe out of the gate round one, to go against Medvedev and really officially open this thing because it's clear we're in an interesting time where the number two seed, number two player in the world, just doesn't like to play on this surface. Yeah, I, you, there's nothing to really like about Medvedev right now coming into this. He's barely played on clay. Uh, there was actually, to me, there was some question a few weeks ago about whether he was going to even show up for Roland Garros, but he's gotten himself one clay court tournament under his belt. And that injury of. he's coming back from is a brutal injury. Like it's a core, like hernia type thing where it's not, even if he was, even if clay was his favorite surface, coming back off of that to the brutal grind of the red dirt is not easy for anyone. No, it's, it's not a good setup for him. So you've got to be looking, if you like to bet, you got to be looking at opportunities, I think, to bet against him. There'll be people betting on him simply because of his name, because of his ranking. Uh, do we do we know who he's got in the first round yet, Mitch? Yeah, he's got the Argentinian Fasund. Uh, uh, it's uh, Vagnes is his name. Don't want to try to pronounce Vagnes, his first yeah. name. Mm -hmm. But and and I know look, Medvedev is you know a major winner. He's got the heart of a champion. Say he grinds that out. That's where it's like Laszlo Jerry in the second round. That's where I think all things come to an end. That's someone that's been playing a lot of clay court tennis recently and done okay. I would look for a strategy right out of the gate to 
assume that Medvedev is going to have to work hard, right? To, to be even a, even his first round opponent, if he's an Argentine and he's played on clay a lot, right? Maybe mm-hmm. that, maybe that, that ends up being yeah. a bit of a long match. Maybe you bet on the underdog to take a set. You'll get plus money on that. And then Jerry. Yeah. I mean, Jerry's a solid player. The Serbian saw him come within a whisker of beating Novak Djokovic in Serbia a few weeks ago, really should have won that match. Uh, had made a couple of pretty bad mental errors, but yeah, that's a money. That's a, that's a bet where you're going to certainly have a chance to get plus money on Jerry, you know, at least to win a set, right. Mm-hmm. Because of the fact that he's such a rankings underdog, yeah. if not to win the match. So I'll be looking for sure. If I, if I bet, which, you know, I do, cause that's, mm-hmm. that's what I do here with tennis channel is talk about tennis betting Yeah. Um, to, to absolutely pick some, some upsets. And a guy like Medvedev is right at the top of my list of folks who I think are vulnerable relative to their ranking coming in here. We could get, I mean, if that opens up, we could get Pablo Karina Busta in there, Kekmanovic, both unseated. That could be a fourth round matchup to get to a corner final. So it certainly opens things up. Uh, the section right above them is headlined by Sinner on the bottom at the 11 seed, Rublev at the top. Some interesting first round matchups headlined by, in my opinion, Christian Green, who's unseated versus the 30th, Tommy Paul. Some unpredictability down there. And I got to say, like, we're talking about the top of the bracket, like it is like the heavyweight section. But some fun early round matchups with some unpredictability that's going to get our eyeballs and attention and you know our bets kind of in order. Oh, there'll be great first round matches. And you know, on clay, you're going to get comebacks. We saw comebacks. It seemed like it was more the norm than anything during the clay court season leading up to this. If you weren't watching in places like Barcelona, Monte Carlo, Madrid, it seemed like for two weeks, the, the player who won the first set was almost automatically losing the second set yeah. in a lot of these. So Clay is a very friendly surface for comebacks. It is a surface where the returner has the best chance to break, which, which, which creates unpredictability in sets. It creates lots of break points and lots of fun, frankly. So I think we're going to see a lot of drama and some of those, those matches you, you just mentioned. I mean, Christian Green, a guy who we were, people were almost making fun of a couple of weeks ago. He hadn't won a match in weeks and weeks comes over, gets on the clay, starts to round into form. He's a dangerous player on clay versus a Tommy Paul mm-hmm. who has had some really nice wins of his own uh, during the clay court season, including, uh, uh, I believe, uh, uh, you know, some, some really tough, tough yeah. matchups. Like he's beaten some top players. Yes. Um, you know, by the way, another thing we should talk about at some point, Mitch, is the Americans here, mm-hmm. which, you know, we, we haven't talked about American men really having a chance to do a lot of damage in Paris for a long time. But we saw some Americans play really well during this clay court season. Seb Korda, who beat Carlos Alcaraz. Francis Tiafo, who won a tournament in, in Portugal on red clay, right? So we've seen Americans show some ability to really do some damage on this stuff. I do want to, I'm glad you brought up Korda. That would be Alcaraz's third round. And I'm not saying gimme at all. Like we would all predict Alcaraz win, but I don't, that, that is, <laughs> let's not just assume that's the guy to beat him on the red stuff this year. So. I think that could be fun. Uh, and you mentioned Sitsipas. He gets Musetti in the first round in a fun little section that includes Shapovalov, Rune, first round. Demonor's in there. Uh, you know, nope, nothing's going to be like chalk. Like, don't like, just watch these matches and predict and get ready for some upsets. I tell you what, Musetti, Sitsipas, first round, it, to me, is a fascinating first round matchup. I don't expect Musetti to win that match, mm-hmm. but Musetti played so well during the clay court season. I, I would be surprised if he doesn't find a way to get a set 
uh, off of sits and yeah. pause in that match. I'll be looking for either live betting or pre-match just to give him a shot at, at taking a set there. He has played so well. That That's one I'm yeah. going to definitely circle on my calendar to keep an eye on. Could be a games total situation too. Just go over if they, if they market that. Absolutely. Uh, and then lastly, just on some first round matchups for the men, the end of Joe Willie Sanga, terrible draw gets Casper Ruud first round. Uh, and we predict that that's where the career will end. A, a, a great career, one that he got the most out of everything, a major finalist. But unfortunate, the luck of the draw is he gets one of the best clay quarters in the world. Yeah, that, that's going to be, I think, just a really special event in Paris, right? He's a beloved player, as he should be. He's been such a great uh, player to watch, such a great ambassador of the game, uh, especially in France. You know that's going to be a really special event. Uh, Rude is definitely not an, an easy matchup for him. I, I would expect Casper to roll pretty easily in that one. Just, you know, Sanga just hasn't played a, a lot of tennis and he's, you know, clearly got the end. But th that will be a special event. I think there's no question about that. So that'll be one to watch and just see the, the French give him what, what I'm sure will be a great send off for a terrific career. Many of his great moments, of course, have come on that red clay. All right. Well, the men's side looks like we could have a, a semifinal of Djokovic, Alcaraz, Sitsipas. And then we're going to have to throw in Yannick Sinner. Uh, I mean, we're not, obviously, Medvedev not really predicted highly, but if it's not Sinner, it could be Christian Garin. Rublev's looking down. Could we get an unknown? I mean, this is, it's kind of fun on that side of the draw, to be honest. Like, somebody has to make this, the semis out of there. I wouldn't, you know, Rublev, I know, is, has had his ups and downs. But, you know, it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't long ago that Rublev beat Novak Djokovic in Serbia. Well, let's not forget. Yeah. That was only a few weeks ago. So, I would not count Rublev out at all. Mm -hmm. um, I actually think, you know, with those names you just read out, uh, I think Rublev would be the guy mm -hmm. I would most expect to get through to that match against Sitsipas. Has wins over Sitsipas on clay, not best of five, but we know that he's done well on the surface. I, I agree with you there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rob Simulcair here on Tennis Channel Inside In, transitioning to the women's draw. Well, it's Higa's world. We're all just living in it. This is unprecedented, winning another tournament in a row. That's five that she's played, that she's won. If she wins the if she wins Roland Garros, which many people are predicting her to do, Rob, she'll equal Venus Williams' win streak, 35 straight matches, which is the most in this century on the WTA, and she's a minus favorite to win the draw. So you just have to admire her not just her game, but her mentality, her ability to take it one match at a time and to play every point similar to Rafael Nadal, like her life depends on it. She just doesn't give you a breath of air. I mean, she just smothers opponents. It's, it's been insane, to be honest. So I think for a lot of American tennis fans, if you're a casual tennis fan who only tunes in during the Grand Slams, I would really encourage you to find a way to tune in and watch Iga Sviantek over the course of this tournament. This is probably a little bit out of the blue for a lot of casual tennis fans who the last time they looked up, um, there was, wait a second, wasn't Ash Barty dominating this, this, you know, this world? What, wasn't she winning the Australian Open? 
wasn't there a different Grand Slam winner pretty much every single slam for the women? I mean, that's been the theme of women's tennis now for the better part of, you know, a few years is who is going to be the newest Grand Slam winner among the women. So this idea that all of a sudden we have this truly dominant number one, I think is still probably sneaking up on a lot of casual tennis fans. But the fact of the matter is, Piontek isn't just winning. She is blowing people out. She's blowing them off the court. She went a stretch of winning, what was it, 24, 25 straight sets, yeah. something like that. I mean, she, she's, not, she's not even losing sets in, in most of these matches. And that's not just against early opponents. That's against top 10 opponents. She's winning in straight sets left and right. So she is truly dominant. And, and I think what's fascinating about it is the way she dominates. There's not one obvious thing she does you know, where you say, oh, that's why she's beating everyone. With Serena, cer certainly it was the serve, right, as well as the forehand. You know, with, with other great women's players over the years, you know, going back to Steffi Graf with the forehand or, you know, others with, you know, certain clear weapons. With Fiontek, it's just everything. Mm -hmm. It's just a complete lack of any weakness. The ability to hit with pace, hit with spin, variety, serve well, return better than anything we've seen uh, in recent years. Yeah. It's just something to watch. Her athleticism is really insane too. Like that that's one thing I think people don't fully grasp is just how much of an athlete she is. And the fact that I mean, her serve's good, but it's not at the elite WTA level. So there might be another, you know, there might be another box to check. We also have to be honest that there's not really anybody, a contender pushing her from the bottom at this point. Uh, you look at the odds market, she's minus one ten favorite. Number two help, thirteen to one, roughly. Jabor is about sixteen, seventeen to one. Bedosa is about 23 to one. I mean, at that point, uh, we really don't have a next contender. I would still say, despite the final result and how she got kind of pushed aside, I would probably go Jabor in that second slot. I could, I could point to maybe a level of fatigue for why the scoreline. I don't know that she would have beaten her regardless, but she had played a lot of tennis getting to that point. Some brutal three-set comeback wins in that tournament, but it is Ego's world, and it's going to be like if you're backing, like we were talking about, Rob, if you're backing somebody outside of Iga, I think you don't even place a future until rounds two, three, or four because you need to, you'll get grid value if Iga's still in the tournament. You kind of need to see who's built up some momentum. Yeah, Iga's going to remain the absolute prohibitive favorite, and no one else is going to get under plus a thousand, right? Mm -hmm. Anytime soon. So if, if there's a player you like to, to bet on, you're right. There's no point in betting now. Let them win two yeah. or three rounds to let them get to the point where they're getting close to actually playing Iga, then maybe put a, a, a bet on them. But at this point, I don't think it's, it just doesn't make sense to me to put money on anyone to win the tournament yeah. other than wow. Iga Sviantec. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to put money on Iga Sviantec to win the tournament because you're getting minus <laughs> money on someone to win a grand slam yeah. tournament before it has started. So there's no bet there that makes no. sense to me. How about the only way to make money on Iga is find your bagel set and just bet on That's that. That's <laughs> it. That's it. So for those of you who don't bet on tennis a lot, there is a, a bet that on most of the major betting apps you can find, which is to bet whether there will be a six love set in a tournament, in a, in a match, I should say. And Iga Sviantec, if you haven't been paying attention, she has been serving up bagels left and right. In fact, I did the, I went back, I looked at her last 20 matches going into the final in Rome, she won a set at six love. And I believe it was nine, nine of those 20 matches. She bageled someone. 
That is an insane rate. Mm. That is not supposed to happen at the elite levels of the WTA. And she's doing it on the regular. So in his, in her early matches, do we have a first round opponent for her? It's a qualifier, right? Yeah, let me pull that up. I, I don't know if it's if it's a qualifier, it's not in yet. Yeah, it's, it's not, not in. in yet because they're still playing qualifying. So she'll get a qualifier. And, you know, I'll really be curious, Mitch, what the odds will be for Iga Fiontech to, to, to win a six love set against the qualifier. I, it, it, it's probably not going to be overwhelming. You typically would get, you know, well north of eight, nine, 10 to one on something like that because it's a rare thing. But in the case of Iga, you, it might not be more than a no. three or four to one odds for her to, to put up a six love set, especially in the early rounds. Her percentages are in the 40s of in this win streak of like 6-1, 6-0 combined, which is just staggering. And uh, games total as well. She covers, uh, you know, going under what you need for the margin of victory too. So let's actually look at the draw because that's where I think it's going to be exciting to kind of see where we can go. Much like the men's tennis tour and the symmetry here, we have a two-seed, Barbara Kutrykova, who hasn't played much defending champion here though, so she does at least like playing on the clay, but just doesn't have the the match play under her belt and that could really open things up in the bottom half of the draw. She gets uh, Perry who I'm not too familiar with as a young French player, but we got Jill Teichman in this section. Uh, mm. Azarenka, Sloan Stevens has a little great Sonia Cristea. Uh, this is a, it's just an interesting section of the draw and one where I think you, you could find some plus money value, maybe even some live betting opportunity. Hey, Jill Teichman's got to feel really good about being in that section. She's played really well. Uh, we saw her make it to the semifinals in Rome, playing really good tennis. She's got to feel great about being there. Listen, no disrespect to Barbora Krachikova. She's the defending champion. She's a terrific player on any surface, especially clay. But match play matters. You know, you've got to have played matches. I think it matters on any surface. I think it matters even more in a way on clay. It probably matters a little less, Mitch, for the women mm -hmm. because they're only going two out of three. The yeah. same that they do you know, in non-grand slams. They don't have to have the stamina built up to go three out of five the way the men do. That said, you've still got issues of timing and your serve and movement and all of those things really do challenge. I want to see Krachikova. I want to watch her. I may, I may play around with, with some, some bets against her early, but again, I don't mm -hmm. know these players she's fighting against, so yeah. probably a little dangerous. She could easily blow out a, a you know, a an unknown, not highly ranked player just because she's still critique about right. But I want to see the form that someone like her is in early to see if I believe in her ability to to make a run to a semi or a final just based on the past success she's had. The depth, um, but some yeah. of the other players out there we should talk about, I think there's a lot of mm -hmm. interesting players coming in with momentum. Yeah, the depth of the game too, I was going to say as well. Like that's part of why I think it's tough to just jump right back into it because you could play an unseated player that's very dangerous. Uh, speaking of which, I mean, we're, we've been talking on your show about the baseline that Garbini Muguruza is not at her is not at her top form. She gets Kaya Kanepi first round. That is a live underdog. That is someone that I've heard WTA players say point blank, we don't want to see her in the draw because you don't know what's going to happen. That's one to target. Uh, speaking of somebody without high seed, without match play and, and good results, Annette Contabit, who has struggled on the clay in her limited uh, time. She plays Ayala Tamjanovic early to get herself going. Not an easy first-round matchup there. Uh, I think there's going to be upsets and opportunities uh, in that section of the draw, which also does include a loaded section six is going to be my little 
the death area of, of tennis. You've got Sakari, you've got Benchich, you've got Andrescu, Andy Samova, Leila Fernandez, all in one section. Uh, so that's that's that going to be a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah, that is your that is your World Cup FIFA World Cup group of death. Oh, right there. D- didn't even mention Naomi in there as well. Oh my! Wow. <laughs> okay. So Osaka really, in addition to not playing, in addition to being hurt. Also ended up in in what sounds like by far the worst. Any Samova well. round one, round one Osaka, Any Samova. Oh man, alive! So I that's that's that is a brutal draw for Naomi Osaka. Amanda Any Samova has been playing lights out, terrific tennis on the clay. I can't wait to see a line on that. I yeah, Osaka will probably be a favorite there, Mitch. Because I don't, I don't know. It's I Naomi mean, Osaka. If she is, it's because of the public. Money, yes. The public money is just going to always flood to her. That's that to me is an unbelievable. Let's let's wait and see a line. But if you've got an Isamova at plus if, money, plus one fifty, or let's anything all go. Like that, that's let's, a great bet. Let's go to the bank if we see it. If we see that, let's all go to our banks because not just. I mean, Naomi's an account is accomplished surefire Hall of Famer for sure. Amanda's made the semifinal here, and she's playing very well on clay. That that is more of a. It would be a slap in the face to her if she's an underdog in this match, I think. Um, but that we'll said, see what it comes out as. Yeah. And then you mentioned Bianca Andreescu. Let, let me know who her first round opponent is. Well, I'd like to know. I I think she. You know, I I was so impressed with the way she came out after taking that several month break, which remember was not really because of physical injuries. She wanted to take some time off for her mental health. Didn't play from October till you know the Stuttgart that's when she came back the beginning of the clay court swing and has really impressed all the way through um you know made Sviantec work a little bit along the way I think it was in Madrid and you know didn't win lost in straight sets but Andrescu came out looking fit she is moving well she is serving well her ground strokes are good I like Andrescu against most opponents to be honest with you right now outside of a of a Sviantec outside of a Jabour, I like her against most opponents right now. Would you like her against Belinda Bencic in the second round? Oh, because <laughs> that's man. where we're that's, that's where we're going. One. That's a really tough one. Um, you know what? I think I probably would, to be honest. I think I would stay with Andrescu. Uh, let's see how they look in their first rounds. I have a lot of respect for Bencic. Yeah. Um, she is a consistent, reliable player. I have made money betting on Bencic in the past. Um, and I, and I, I'm a huge fan of her and her uh-huh. game, but I think if Andrescu is on, if they're both playing their best tennis, yeah. I think Andrescu has power that Benchich doesn't have. I think she can speed things up a little bit for Benchich. Yeah. And yeah, I, I would probably give her the edge if they're both on form. I think it's, I agree slightly. And I think it's because it's round two. Because with Andrescu, I wonder if she wins matches, how the fatigue, how the body's going to react to being in this grind again. But they're both playing... They're both playing qualifiers essentially in the first round. We don't have the draw there, but that would be the second round. That that's nuts. Uh, and just a, a quick transition for how the luck of the draw can be good or bad. There are other players like Emirata Kanyu that don't have the landmines in front of them. Uh, Sabalenka, again, another one that I know can be hot and cold. You've done well on recently betting on her. Not really the pitfalls there. So this draw has been. I mean, obviously to win the tournament, you're probably going to have to go through Iga, but. To go on a little run here, I think it sets up nicely for players like Radikanyu and Sabalenka. I love Sabalenka right now against anyone who she is ranked higher than. Um, and, and I think that if you're betting, you get a pretty good price on Sabalenka still because she's had so much trouble with her serve over the last year or two. People have that memory of watching her 
double fault like crazy and they're a little afraid to bet on her. So when she's informed, which she is, I think you get a really good price on her. And I, I, I definitely will be looking to back her. Radakanu is interesting. For a while after the U.S. Open, she was really struggling. She's been through the, the coaching changes. She was losing on a pretty much regular basis. Uh, but we started to see in the clay court swing, again, she found her form a little bit. She had a nice run of, of, of matches won um, in Stuttgart against, against a, I think, a qualifier and a wild card. Um, won some more. I believe it was in Madrid. So she actually is starting to come into form. And I'd say she's at a point now where if she's playing a qualifier, she's playing a wild card or someone who you look at and say, oh, she should beat her or someone outside the top 50. I'm not really that worried about Radakanu right now. Now, am I ready to back her? <laughs> not sure. I, I, I might want to take a round and see what Emma's got um, in, you know, back in a grand slam. I'm still a little wary of her. I'm more bullish on a Sabalenka or someone else who has been there, yeah. done that repeatedly at the Grand Slam level. But Emma's not, Emma's not, she's in a much better place in the US than she was three months ago. I like it. My take around strategy is wearing off. Just take the first round off, do some, do some <laughs> intel research, put your feet up, you know, yeah, have a coffee let, let and just watch simmer. it. Let things yeah. simmer. This is a, they got 128 people. I love it. It's, it's the best. Of this draw. You're not going to miss out on your opportunity if you like to bet. To bet there's yeah. there's there's from second around through you got lots of chances oh i know uh last thing uh on this i mean the players that can make runs that are you know maybe being overlooked underappreciated i would add jessica pagula to that mix she has a nice little section pliskova who hasn't really done much of anything recently results wise that would get her to the quarterfinals obviously ego would await so that would be tough but her to go on a nice win streak would be good and i come back to sakari because She's had some mental lapses. She was points away from getting to the final against the eventual champion. Uh, you're just trying to see, like you said, like we were talking, see who's playing well early, see what the draw looks like, how many matches away from tough opponents. But I think there's going to be opportunities on the women's side if you're smart looking at matchups to see who can make a run. If you want to pick a player, a dark horse, to maybe make a run to a quarterfinal, I would look at Jill Teichman. We talked about her earlier. Um, love Sabalenka. Love and rescue. Um, outside of them, yeah, you mentioned Pagula. I'm trying to think about other Americans. I mean, uh, Coco. We should probably talk about Collins. Where Where is Collins? What does she have? So Collins is on the Sabalenka side, which would be a fourth round showdown. Now, mm. the draw itself, my opinion, isn't as tough as other as other areas. So it's a pretty manageable path to round four with Sabalenka. That's that one. And Coco was in the section uh, a little that we mentioned before where we're predicting some pitfalls for players that haven't played much too. So uh, basically, as long as it's not section six or, or section one EGA section, I think there's paths to uh, a manageable run. I like Collins to win some matches here. I, I want to see each of her matchups, mm -hmm. but she's playing well. She doesn't, I don't think she actually gets enough respect, to be mm -hmm. honest, from odds makers. Um, she's, she's very solid and competent on this surface. Huge weapons, big forehand, moves well. I, I I would look for opportunities to back Daniel Collins. I guess we didn't even mention Halep, who's the other one who comes in as the as the second favorite, but would have to play Iga in the fourth round. So there you go. I mean, that's don't just, like that for her. No. Don't like that for her at all. I I, I like her to get there. I, mm -hmm. you know, Halep's been really solid. Yep. For those who don't know, she's got a new, you know, got a new coach. Uh, you know, Serena's old coach. She's been playing really well. 
so I, I like her to beat the players she's supposed to beat, but no, not Iga. Well, Rob Simulcare, this was a blast. Thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, I'm not going to pick against Iga until someone proves me proves me wrong. And uh, I'm prepared for some epic showdowns on the men's side. But we can check you out on Bet the Baseline. I know you got some good content coming up, and French Open is going to be buzzing. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun on that. We'll be doing some live betting, you know, take you through all the props, all the bets you can take. We like to do it, uh, you know, as much as we can during live matches, which is a lot of time during a Grand Slam. So it'll be a lot of fun. Mitch, thanks for having me on. Good luck. Thanks again, Rob, for coming on the show. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Big thanks again to both CC Bellis and Rob Simulcare. CC just killing it in a commentary career. She continues to stay involved in the game. And check out Bet the Baseline, Rob Simulcare's gambling show on Tennis Channel's YouTube page, the Tennis.com Facebook page, and follow Tennis Bets on Twitter to get up to speed as the French Open kicks into high gear. Thanks, everybody out there for listening. We're part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast. We're also on all your podcast platforms. We'll be back next week. It'll be the first couple of days of Roland Garros, so we'll be getting our feet wet, checking out some good matchups, and previewing and recapping all the action. Not going to want to miss it. There's no more road. We're here. Roland Garros is here. For Rob Simmel, Karen C.C. Bellis, I am Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside, and we will see you next week. Thank you.